millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Would you consider yourself a morning person? Uh, I think at this time of year, yes, because I think it's kind of, the, you often find that the weather is the sweetest at the first half an hour of the day, particularly, you know, in England, where it's just going to rain probably from 10 o'clock, I mean, around about now onwards. So, uh, yeah, I guess I am. There's a weird kind of feeling when you're, it feels like you're up before everyone else and you can have up early and raring to go and it's, it's a good motivator. It's my favourite and it's my favourite on tour. Ever, any kind of touring I'm doing, I always want to get up early and walk in whatever city I'm in and find like a really good coffee. And particularly if there's not many people about or you're just watching people kind of shuffling to work or whatever. I think there's something so pure about that that moment in the morning to yourself. It feels like you're almost a fly on the wall as well and you shouldn't be there. You kind of just spy on all these people. Yeah, absolutely. Like a little, like a ghost, like, you know, just observing yeah, you know, without people knowing that you're there. I mean, that's kind of creepy, <laughs> like like a voyeur of um of kind of normality. Yeah. Yeah, it feels weird looking back to that as well now when everything has been. I mean, that's kind of taken away at the moment. If you were to go into a city, did I imagine you wouldn't see as many people kind of going about their business? Yeah, I think I feel sort of disappointed that I never did that thing. I was living in London in the first in the major lockdown, and I never sort of I didn't jump on the tube and go and see what it was like in in central London. And I feel like slightly disappointed that I didn't do that but at the same time I didn't want to do that in the knowledge that maybe lots of other people would do that and I felt like I really did feel a sense of and a lot a lot of people did of kind of collective responsibility to sort of take it very seriously and, and stay at home but I do feel disappointed that I didn't get to witness the ghost town you know. I can imagine it would have been quite bizarre. I remember where I was up in Aberdeenshire for a lot of the night in the middle of nowhere pretty much and just away from me, maybe about a half hour, I was what there was a motorway. And I remember walking past it every day and it just been absolutely dead. I and mean, it would have usually been, you know, heaving in the middle of the day. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's, it's, there was something so extraordinary about that. And, you know, we, I lived on a main road in North London and it's a bus, like a main bus route. And the first time I saw a bus with no one on it, it was just so eerie. 
and straight is very strange yeah yeah quite a kind of striking piece of imagery i imagine does that kind of stick out to you when you think back to the lockdown that image of it going past actually yeah that image and, and an image which is slightly more sad there was a girl who lived across the road from me who had a baby and her mum coming to visit but they didn't have a garden they're in a flat like me so they were sitting on this kind of patch of grass and her mum coming to visit her with her child for the first time and sitting two meters away and throwing like a pizza box to her for lunch and there was just something about it that was so like unbelievably weird and sad you know watching this kind of what should be such a kind of joyful and free moment being uh interrupted yeah just this kind of degree of separation there so plain to see yeah and just the whole like lockdown affected people differently depending on what your living circumstances were you know like if you were in a flat and you didn't have a garden you were having a very different time to people with their gardens and the glorious weather and the uh, the countryside you know whatever so I, I, you know lots of people were saying it was a very leveling or universal experience but I, I don't think that I don't think that it was really I think if anything we, we what we're feeling now is a lot of tensions that have come out as a result of the kind of inequalities that have become very clear at this point you know do you know what I mean yeah I mean for sure I mean it felt like it highlighted so many of the issues and kind of just brought them straight to the surface it's like picking up a rock and you know when you see all the bugs underneath it, it kind of just highlighted everything that was there that yeah. everyone kind of knew but hadn't been looking at yeah I've, I've seen some pretty good bugs recently uh, yesterday I saw the most handsome woodlouse I've ever seen in my life oh my god <laughs> <laughs> what's uh what's a day in the life like for you at the moment then well currently like at the moment um I've been building this uh, this studio so um, with my dad. My dad's a he's a joiner, he's a chippy. So he he's like a nine to five. He's like right, I get here at nine and we uh, we work. We take a full lunch break and then we work till five thirty, six o'clock. And so at the moment it's been so different to what my days are normally like. But yeah, we've just spent the last six weeks doing that. We just finished. So I'm actually just sort of and we've moved house and I'm in like I'm actually living in this bungalow that my grandma used to live here. Then she passed away, and then my dad's uh, dad's mum and dad moved in here, and my my granddad died here. And then in lockdown, my sister had her baby in the front room of this house. So I'm living in this house that's kind of uh, held such a lot of kind of story recently. Um, and then building this studio, I'm just sort of trying to like work out what my days are going to look like or feel like here. Really, it's all quite new. Have you ever? I know you were speaking there about how your dad's very much in you know kind of nine till five. Is that something that's ever worked for you for writing or has it always just been a bit, you know, much more of a fluid thing? Um, to be honest, I think that it depends. I think that putting parameters on your day is really important. So the EP I just released, Whoosh, I wrote most of that in like five days, um, which I did in a studio in London. And it was the uh, restrictions were kind of financial and time based. So I could afford five days in a writing room and I just had to get as much done as possible. But they only let me have the writing room 11 to five each day. And I got so much done because I knew what my parameters were and they were really clear. So at, the t- at times like this where lots of artists maybe have spent a lot of time writing already, maybe have already finished a record, not knowing when we might go on the road again, it's, it's difficult to kind of have any um, hand, hand boulders or whatever. Like if you're climbing a wall, it just feels like endless. Um, so I do think the setting yourself boundaries, even if it's just like, I'm going to write from eight in the morning until lunchtime. And then in the afternoons, I'm going to watch documentaries or like what or whatever. But I don't think just going to the studio every day is how I work personally. Yeah, it's almost like being polarized by choice in a way. Mm, I think having too much time is, you know, it's not good for you 
famously and biblically, you know, idle, idle thumbs and all that. So yeah, trying to find some structure, particularly at the moment, is I think it's good. Yeah, it's good for me. When were you in that studio? When did you go in for those five days? In December. So um, it'd been really busy. I think I was doing work with Bombay. I just had a lot of time and I knew I just put out Pity Party and I knew that I was going on the road again in January really quickly. So I was like, if I want to be kind of a, it's a bit business speaky, but like ahead of myself, I should try and write an EP to have out, you know, this year. So it was December, yeah. That's really fascinating when it came, because if you think about like, worse, you know, the opening track with this kind of joyful upbeat opening and this warm palette, it very much feels like you can get that sense of it's looking forward and it's kind of looking at the horizons and what's coming up. Yeah. I, I remember so clearly at that time feeling, I suppose I, I, I like the term empowered, but I also felt very kind of whole. You know, it's a very difficult thing to achieve, you know, that sense of being like, okay, I'm, my plates are all spinning and I, I'm like smashing this <laughs> and I feel good, you know. And so that I did actually write that tune at that time. So it's quite, it was quite weird to put it out at a time where it's like, oh, I like literally someone has came along and smashed all my plates, but that's cool because they smashed everyone else's, so I'm not going to complain. The, kind of, the closing track is more maybe fitting for where we're at now. It feels like a song that has that kind of weird sense of finality and a message that could be quite easily applied to our time and quite applicable. Is, is Hope or something like it, the last track? Yeah. Yeah, I see. I wrote that one in quarantine. I wrote that in the lockdown. Ah, right. Yeah, and so we put it on. I, I think that I felt compelled to put something out right away because it was there. I was like, right, I've written this thing. Let's put it on the EP as part of things because I wanted to connect because I wasn't on the road. I really missed. I wanted to connect with people somehow, and that was my offering. I guess that kind of ties into you know that idea of connecting people. The same thing with the hot meal you set up, and that idea of people getting in touch and kind of having that connection. Absolutely, I mean, I checked that this morning. Like, I love that. I got I got sent so many fascinating stories of little snapshots of their lives at that point. You know, people in airports trying to get home, people um, who were separated from partners and loved ones, and it was a real privilege. I mean, I hate it when people say that, but it was that people wanted to sort of write to me and sort of. I wrote, you know, I wrote, I tried to write back to everyone. I mean, hopefully I didn't miss anyone. It was brilliant. I'm really glad I did it because I think people are struggling. I think it's a really hard time and you just want to do what you can to try and make someone uh, feel just that little bit more like they exist. I guess when you're isolated and like a lot of people were, you lose that sense of communication, that sense of connection with someone else. So just to have that actual physical kind of thing of writing out a full email, it's different as well to just typing a message or a text or whatever. It's almost like letter writing in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a massive like advocate for, you know, keeping a journal because it's a sort of way of scanning yourself and being like, oh, okay, I'm not okay. Or actually I had a good day or perhaps I'm doing all right. Or um, maybe that was an opportunity I missed today. Or, you know, you know, like it's checking in. So writing a long letter or an email, it performs sort of two services, a service to yourself and a service to the person that you're trying to communicate with. Um, I mean, this all sounds very therapy, doesn't it? You know, I just think I really, my heart goes out to everyone, so you know, universally who's kind of dealing with this. It's, it's really hard. What emotion was most prevalent, do you think, from all the emails? Probably, I mean, that's a really, a really good question. I'm just trying to, I'm now just kind of going back in my head. I think it was one of fear, really, if we go into, you know, people didn't know what was going to happen with their jobs what was going to happen with their loved ones what was gonna and yeah I think that as a fear as an emotion is something that I kind of know and understand very well and I think that fear is the is at the root of a lot of our behavior 
um, whether it's fear or overcoming fear or succumbing to fear. And I know at the moment there's a lot of kind of conversations about being brave and not giving in to fear, you know, this kind of Trumpian, like, you don't need to be afraid kind of thing. But I think you have to think of fear as a, as a protective, useful tool. You acknowledge it and you decide how much of your, you know, of your kind of ancestral self is like, God, I spent so much time with my dad. My dad's a real hippie, like he's such a hippie. I, this is kind of why this conversation's gone a bit this way, but fear doesn't have to be something that you simply cast aside or let it, you know, let it take over you. You can find a way of using fear to help you work out what it is and that you need to do. Yeah, I think especially when you think about stuff like, you know, fear of existential stuff, if you try and fight that, you're not really going to get anywhere. You kind of need to accept it and make it a part of you to, to have any hope of kind of getting past it or at least coming to terms with it. Yeah, acceptance is definitely the word. And I think that accepting what's happening now is the only way that you're going to kind of, kind of keep yourself you know okay i suppose it felt like when everything was happening at the start that it was the most probably the most afraid i think i can remember like a collective sense of fear kind of overcoming the whole country i know people kind of spoke about it compared it to war times and almost with that kind of overwhelming fear i guess that was the thing that kind of connected us a little bit in in united people it felt like a real common enemy where you know we're dealing at the moment with conceptual or ideological enemies rather than something that we you know like an alien or you know something separate to the planet somehow that that unites the planet to say uh we can all turn and look at this thing and say that is our enemy it didn't last very long but for a moment i felt that that was what happened everyone was saying you know we weren't we weren't being told that each other were the enemy although obviously that's kind of what it's got to now but um there was a lot of kind of talk about how much good it brought out in people and yeah. <laughs> it's depressing it hasn't stuck around a little bit more. <laughs> did you did you say before you keep a, a journal as well, like a diary? Yeah, well I yeah, I've journaled on and off since I was about ten, I think. Do you look back at them quite a lot? Or when do you? Yeah. I did recently because I moved, like I said, from London back to my hometown. So this is where my family are and uh, I had a big trunk of these old journals that my mum was desperate for me to finally take away from their house but um, honestly I can't stand reading them mostly because they're so unreliable like I, when I'm 13 14 it's particularly bad because I'm reading this account of an event and as an adult I'm looking back and going I remember that and that's not how it happened and that's not what you felt and it's interesting because I think that when you're journaling in that kind of personal way that kind of um, teen movie way you were aware that maybe someone will read it. Whereas now I write a journal that's more just what happened, what what happened today, you know, like it's not kind of loaded with my uh, feelings on things or whatever. It's just like today was this, today was that, which I learned from my friend Seren, actually, who's the drummer in Bombay Bicycle Club, because he said that that's how he journals. And I was like, that sounds pretty good to me. So it's just a record of events, essentially. What's it like when, so say you're reading them and you read a page that, you know, you remember pretty well. How does that compare to reading something that you have absolutely no recollection of? Oh, God, you know what? The, the no recollection thing is just as curious. I think memory is quite a fascinating kind of fallible human tool or anyway, because so often we don't remember things the same way or we remember something because someone told us it some particular way. You know, it's, it's incredibly changeable and unreliable. I don't know, because then if I read it and I say, I don't remember that event, but I, my imagination has now conjured that event. Is the event my imagination conjuring, you know, an honest reflection 
of the time. I mean, absolutely not. I find that reading back on diaries, it just kind of proves your the way you survey your life is not necessarily true. I guess with time, your like emotions and how you feel about a certain situation end up kind of contorting the memory a wee bit and kind of shifting it and moulding it maybe a wee bit more how you wanted it gone. Of course, and I think that there's been some really interesting kind of examples of this when sort of kind of your society changes. So maybe... I remember listening, and I can't remember her name, but a lady who married her art school teacher when who kind of, and he sort of like hit on her when she was 16 and they ended up getting married and she wrote a book about it back in the day and then wrote a kind of revised book about it more recently after Me Too, being like, whoa, I didn't realise that that was properly kind of not okay. But she still loved him and it's a really lovely story and they had a brilliant relationship, but the times changed and altered the way she remembered that event. Yeah, that's fascinating. Almost like the context it was placed in, in a wider sense, shifted it. Massively. And I think that, you know, that's, it's quite interesting. I think that's quite an interesting thing that's going on with lots of kind of online, I don't, I mean, I'm not, you know, throwing shade on it, but kind of Twitter juries and stuff where you might take an event that happened a long time ago and, you know, kind of drag it into the 2020 sphere. And of course, it's not going to be deemed acceptable. So it's quite difficult, you know. I just love that story. If I'll email you actually the name of that lady because it's so she did a podcast episode that I listened to. Yeah, I'm gonna check it out. It's such a weird thing taking something completely out of context and dropping it into the kind of modern modern era. Is that the same with like music? How do you feel like the kind of wider context and the environment that you release music into impacts the way it's like received and interpreted by people? It can be more important than the song sometimes. I think that I've had, I've known examples of songs that have come out and made no impact and then been out for several years and then a kind of an event will occur and will make that song completely sing in that moment. You know, it will ring that bell and suddenly, you know, they have kind of transformed careers. But similarly, I've heard of people who have put out songs with particular lyrics and then a certain event will happen and everyone will say it's no longer appropriate. You know, for example, songs about planes, this is going to sound crass, it's not supposed to, um, songs about planes around 9-11. You know, it was like if you were talking about, uh, you know, flight, it was probably your your track wasn't going to get played on the radio. The, I think that the wider environment is going to massively dictate how well your music resonates um, with people. Yeah, you can't control it, really. You just have to hope that um, each of your moments finds a moment. You wonder how the events that are kind of occurring all over the world at the moment, whether that be the pandemic or a lot of the other movements that are currently going on, are going to go forth and kind of impact it in a similar way. Yeah, I think that people have been studying our kind of habits and behaviours during this time. And I think in terms of music, people have been looking to feel better. So it's like, you know, classics. People have been listening to classics and uh, feel good music and i can understand that i mean i personally have just been listening to a lot of radiohead <laughs> because i feel like it's just, i sat in my kitchen last night and i was like under the speaker and it was just oh like perfect it was perfect perfectly rhythmic and perfectly sad and perfectly understood and i was like oh yeah this i mean it changed my mood i was like this is perfect i'm very lucky to be alive what's your go-to radiohead album What's the one you kind of gravitate toward the most? <laughs> this is controversial, so I'm going to just throw it out there and hope for the best, but I'm a massive fan of In Rainbows. I know. I don't think that's controversial. I've got the same. Oh, really? Okay. Because I, I, I mean, yeah, I've got friends who are just like, no, nah, that's just not how, that's not how you do Radiohead, Liz. And I'm like, well, what can I say? I feel like most people, like I, when I discovered Radiohead, 
everything had kind of been out, if you know what I mean. Like the discography was out. I feel like if you if you live through it, you maybe have a slightly different perception of it. But most people I know, I feel like go for in Rainbows as well. I feel like if you've absorbed the discography once, it's kind of mostly whole. Yeah, I think I'm exactly the same as you. I sort of worked backwards from in Rainbows. So yes, yeah, our kind of my kind of like moment of. Uh, sort of discovering Radiohead was probably a lot maybe later than some people's. How old were you when you discovered them? I think I was 19 and so as someone who was kind of relatively into music to be 19 and sort of feel radio I mean when I say discover I mean like I felt them I think I saw them do 15 step on uh, Jules Holland and I was like oh my god wow because I obviously knew who Radiohead were but they didn't resonate with me they sort of always sort of associate I sort of associated them in my mind with like sunglass wearing sunglasses wearing uncles with a tape player in their car <laughs> and I was like you know I was only into punk I was like only into yeah so when I saw that performance I think that I felt that I was being allowed to find them by myself rather than being you know the certain bands where people are always trying to kind of push them on your way but yeah yeah and then you go you, you just have to discover it by yourself similarly I had the same thing with Joni Mitchell where I had to find her by myself I know you were saying at that time when you kind of discovered them you were into kind of mostly punky stuff at what point have your tastes kind of evolved most like most rapidly at what period in your life have your tastes gone through quite a quite a transformation I think probably now I think that in my mid-20s like when I was about 25 because when you're younger I feel like your taste it's about identity and you're identifying to people who you are and also I grew up in a you know this small town it was very very white and very very male so I was in a band but I was the only girl I knew who was in a band I didn't know of any bands I listened to that had any women members so I listened to basically no female vocalists with the exception of Patti Smith until I was about I'm not even kidding until I was about 20 and then I would meet people and um, particularly my, my my partner she had a huge effect on um, showing me you know the fact that I was as a teenager I didn't listen to Hold is quite interesting because I don't think that anyone was put, was kind of showing me that kind of route. I was just following the dudes and I loved it. There was no, but it's just quite interesting. So I think once you can kind of do away with that, using your taste as an armor and allowing yourself or feeling strong enough to allow it to be vulnerable, it's such a wicked thing to discover. I mean, I would like, I try and listen to as much music as possible. I think it's the best. I think it's the best thing human beings do. I mean, with maybe with the exception of painting or whatever art. Yeah, so I say that my, I, I think that my, I've kind of, my taste is getting better and better as I get older. The last record kind of feels like a product of that as well, because it, I mean, lyrically it kind of tackles a lot of what happened in your mid-20s, and it, so it kind of makes sense that the, the sound of it as well is kind of a, a product of that and kind of an amalgamation of all those influences coming together in that period of kind of rapidly changing tastes and evolution. Yeah, definitely, and I think particularly kind of, I was listening to, you know, finally listening to bands with mostly American, but like, you know, punk or, or guitar music that was female-led. And that was, you know, that hadn't been introduced into my listening really at all. So it, I think that that has a, has a massive effect in what you feel like you can do and what boundaries you can push. Yeah, for sure. With that last record, you know, tackling so much of that, that time period as well in your 20s, how did your 20s compare to what you expected them to be? <laughs> well... I think that I had a very tumultuous introduction into the music industry. I was signed at 19. I left, I was at art school. I left art school. I dropped out. I moved to London. I signed with a major label. I had a, you know, very kind of proactive kind of businessy management. 
you know, looking back again at my journals, I was like going for meetings all the time at like bloody like accountants offices. I was like, oh, it was so sort of not creative. And that kind of quickly dissolved with various kind of complications. And I got involved in a really long lawsuit for most of the advance that I'd, you know, had given to me or given to me, whatever, you know, however it works. So I think that I had high ambitions, like, well, I'd say high ambitions. I think basically I was like, I'm going to be a pop star. But then I sort of got into that world and saw it for what it was. And I'm really glad that that didn't happen. So then I, you kind of constantly reevaluating where you fit, what's right for you, where it's going to kind of bring out your fullest potential. So I think that my 20s were a struggle in lots of ways. But then I had amazing opportunities. You know, the touring I did with Bombay changed my my worldview. It changed, you know, I'd never used chopsticks before I toured with Bombay. So I was like, you know, it completely kind of expanded what I thought was possible for music again after sort of having my my kind of ambitions dashed a little bit so I think I'm in the right place I mean how how much more successful can something be than thinking because I, I turned 30 a couple of months ago and I did a lot of that analysis I think I'm in the right place I feel like I can still get better and do better and that's pretty good that's pretty cool you can kind of use them to propel you that idea of wanting to be better and still having that kind of fire in your belly yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how, what it must be like for these, for youngsters who kind of have um, toured the world, you know, toured the world three times and have made loads of money by the time they're 21. What, you know, what's next, I suppose, must be kind of a big question. You're always going to be asking yourself that question. At what point, you were speaking there as well, but have the, you, you kind of saw the industry for what it was a wee bit. At what point did the allure and the kind of magic of it start to slide a wee bit and slip? It's quite a deceiving industry. I think that the industry, I, I always say that I never have anything against major record labels. I think they do a fantastic job with what they're doing. It just wasn't right for me. And I, I, it was the first time in my life where I was around people who were dealing in mon- no, big money, 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 money. You know, I'm, I, didn't, I didn't understand it. I didn't speak the language. Um, I think that in that respect, I was incredibly naive and, and quite vulnerable, really. And you've got, you know, only men around you all the time I felt that my boundaries were being pushed in terms of how I wanted to look like how I felt comfortable you know things like putting money on whether or not they could get me in heels at a photo shoot you know this kind of it's it's not nice like it's kind of small but it's not nice and these little things start to ring your panic bell inside you're like right this is not good but I'm really glad that I did it because I think that I knew it wasn't the right way I knew it wasn't the right people certainly got me somewhere and it and it and certainly it got me started in whatever you know with whatever resilience I had to build after that it was I'm sort of proud of myself I guess yeah you become stronger as a as a result of these experiences well you either do or you don't you know I'm sort of it took a long time for me to think that I have actually got stronger I think that they can when it's something that you love and it's something that you feel like you're being told that you have one chance at or that you know it's around the time where shows like the x factor and and stuff were kind of they were they were the kings of the industry so it was all about pulling you out of your shitty little normal life sorry i don't know if i'm allowed to swear and make you yeah you know and what a horrible pernicious kind of idea to have people kind of desire and i think yeah so you sort of have your hairstylist you know like <laughs> combing your hair saying you get one chance at this sweetie and all this stuff and you're like panicking all the time puts you into a state of stress it makes you make decisions that you wouldn't normally 
and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 curious. I think that that can really make you quite tired by the end of the whole proceeding. So you have to build yourself up, sort of brick by brick, uh, which I think that I did. So I'm sort of like a little like a rustic cabin now myself. I mean, you must learn a lot about yourself from having to do that, though, as well. Having to kind of rebuild and yeah, definitely. I think that you throughout your life will be amazed at what you can discover about yourself at any point. And I don't think that ever stops. You're, you can hide things away completely and not know that they're there. And then suddenly you're like, of course, like that makes so much sense. Um, and I think that's um, amazing. It amazes me the kind of depths that we have inside of ourselves. And I do feel like I've developed a, a resilience and an amazing kind of network of people really now. I've got, you know, great friends, great management, you know, great people working around me, um, which has taken a while, but which is kind of makes makes the big difference, you know. What was like the most important realisation you had during that period? I think that I thought a lot about instinct. I thought, wow, your instinct is so good. And you, I sort of spent so many years batting my instinct away. I spent another year or so worrying that I'd lost my ability to detect my instincts completely. I, I sort of lost the sense of being able to make decisions. You know, like I didn't have any compass inside of me. I felt that I'd broken it because I'd overridden it so many times. But it, it comes back and I think that I've, I've retrained myself to kind of understand what my instinct is and where it's trying to take me. And what it's trying to keep me safe from. Is that the same when you're making decisions from like a creative point of view and musically when you're working on songs? Is that the same thing that's guiding you? Yes, definitely. And I think that's what it's led to ultimately is I think when I was younger, and I think lots of younger artists do this, not all, but um, lots. I felt like there was part of my brain, if I'm being honest, part of my brain was always thinking about how the work was going to be received when I was making it or who I was trying to kind of impress. Whereas now, I genuinely feel like I let go and I just and I do find a flow with my work when I'm when I'm very happy where I don't think about where the song is going to going to end where it's going to go next where when it's going to be released who's going to release it you know I just enjoy the process of of making instinctively so much like it's the biggest pleasure is that what's kind of enabled you to be so honest in your songwriting now as well that kind of letting go in that release and and just being completely free and liberated I mean, I say this, but I, and I always say that I, um, I don't get embarrassed or I try not to get embarrassed. I think that embarrassment is kind of tied into shame and tied into nasty ideas. And I think, you know, it's, I feel like I can be strong enough to stand up and say, like, this is my, this is my flaw or this is a horrible mistake I made or, and appreciate that not only is it cathartic for me, that it is connecting with others who might feel that they can't say that they are that they are weak or that they are sad or that they fucked up. I mean, that sounds a bit bloody pious, but you know, like in a small way, I feel like that's something that I can do. Embarrassment's such a strange kind of emotion. Like you were saying, there where it can come from. It's so bizarre. Like you, you, you kind of wonder if it's something we're born with, or if it's very much something that's kind of projected onto us and instilled in us as we kind of grow up. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, obviously, there's the the kind of uh, Adam and Eve. So she, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know my Bible well enough, but she eats the apple, right? Which then makes them um, aware of their nakedness, and so then they start to cover themselves with. That's the first idea of modesty, you know, because they're embarrassed of their of their parts of their kind of their sex or whatever. I guess it's kind of a metaphor for loss of innocence as well, isn't it? Yeah, but I feel like society, you know, society. I would definitely consider myself to be a person that 
has always felt suspicious of societal norms. You know, I'm I'm not your normal girl. I'm not your normal townie. You know, I sort of I've never felt like I have any desire whatsoever to uphold the status quo. So I feel like that's why I'm like I will not be embarrassed because what that's that's me bowing down to what you expect of my behaviour. Um, you know, I conduct myself with kindness. I'm you know with generosity, with listening, with vulnerability. But I won't pretend to uphold rules that hold it, that are holding people back. You know? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it sounds like you can be completely liberated as a result of that, and kind of completely free to do what you want with your music as a result of. I guess it can be fascinating as well to kind of upend people's expectations when it comes to your your kind of creativity and your music as well. Yeah, maybe, but I think it's um it's a hard thing to do. I think when you were building up a fan base, when you know when you were an indie artist, you, you there's still that sense. I think a little bit of like not wanting to like lose them and be like, oh, come back, please. You know, I think you have to be really brave. But I also think that I'm definitely at the point now where I go, yeah, I feel brave. I feel brave. I feel like, okay, I'd like to take this curious um, detour and see what happens. And it doesn't matter. You know, I think that the thing is, is that people can get very over-concerned about the next EP or the next record. And actually I'm like, well, I hopefully will make 10 or 15 albums in my life. And I'm on my, this, I'm making my third. So I'm like, I need to break boundaries to keep do it, to keep being able to do this. I can't just keep sitting thinking, well, is anyone going to like this? I don't think that's how you, um, you know, make an omelette. Do you think creating music, and, and initially does it, does it make you care more or less about what other people think? I think everyone would like, I'd love to be able to sit here and say, I don't care what people think, but I really care. I care that I'm having an impact, however small, on people's time on the planet. I, you know, so I think that I do care, but I, it doesn't have to be a yes or no answer. I, I kind of care. I'm interested in, I'm interested in what people sort of think of the work or, you know, I feel like quite often we're being asked to say, yes, I like that or no, I don't like that rather than kind of studying it. I don't know, you know, not studying it, but. I want people to engage whether they like it or not. My least favourite question format in the world is what's your favourite dot, dot, dot. Because I'm like, what's my favourite? Like, I don't know. It depends on the, the moment. Like, you can't, I feel like to categorise things, I, I'm very much more interested, like you say, in like watching or listening to something and being like, I like that sound or uh, that's a curious kind of subplot. Or Because then I feel like you're actually giving the work its credibility. I suppose we're talking a bit about credibility there. Like someone is going to listen to your work with enough of their ears because they think you've put enough thought into it rather than letting it gloss over you or whatever. How important is it for the listener to kind of understand the amount of work that has gone into creating a piece of music and crafting, you know, an album? I think, for, and I obviously can only ever speak for myself, but the thing that I think that I make work for and that lots of maybe people is that I I want to be understood that's why I make work is because I go I want you to understand me the worst feeling in the world is when it's misinterpreted and you go okay well I'm just gonna have to try and say that again because it wasn't understood that's the hardest thing that we're doing as people is saying do you understand me and someone's saying back to you did you say this and you're saying no that's not that's not what I meant I'll try again that's that's my that's my quest is like when people I think come to see a show and it, that you have that feeling in a show that's like everyone is standing and saying I understand that's what is being missed I think so much at the moment it's that feeling of everyone you're in a room together connecting and feeling 
emotions of the you know the kind of same variety and just like you say all being Definitely. there together yeah it's i mean it's the the most missed thing i think for a lot of people who are into music at the moment is and i think that i think the online sphere is dangerous i think it's full of sadness and isolation and i think that only having that thing and not having opportunities to connect with human beings you know when you're in a really good gig and the mood is amazing and someone like bangs into you at the bar and you both turn and you look at each other and you smile you say that's fine mate like don't worry and it's the best feeling in the world because it's allowing you to all of you to behave as if you're in a utopia like everyone has space and time for one another that's amazing. i think that's just it, it shows us what we are capable of and what we still have within us it feels like the number of examples of places you can think of like that in the modern world as well that idea of everyone just being completely kind to each other and that utopian thing that you mentioned it feels like it's decreasing a wee bit or quite quite a bit the places where that definitely i think that i i really try really hard to because i don't know all i know is that i've been part of you know during uh covid like been part of small local community groups and you go okay so if i'm aware that there are two happening on my street then there must be so many more happening across the country across the world and people are sort of, I think, taking taking things into their own hands in that respect. I have to, and I think that I truly have to believe that people are finding a way, but I think at the moment with the main thing being that you can't gather with big groups of people, I'm hoping it doesn't put too much of a dent in our spirit. But you know, we'll, you know, with music, I think that it's gonna be so exciting. Like my, my younger cousin, she's 18, she just moved down to London. I said to her the other day, I was like, when this builds back up, it's going to be so exciting. You know, who knows what economics that, you know, states we're going to be in, but like maybe there'll be really cheap warehouse space. Maybe there'll be really this, you know, there's going to be a new energy of getting people together. I hope so anyway. Yeah. And f- fingers crossed that everyone can kind of tap into that and use that to fuel them. Yeah, I hope so. I really hope so. California Screaming kind of touches upon what we've been speaking about a little bit as well, though, with its idea of collective panic almost. You know, it's a lot darker than the first track on the EP, and it's got such an evocative phrase about it. Were you were you in a state of kind of panic when you wrote it, or stress when um, you wrote not it? Not when or? I wrote it. I'm I'm certainly the kind of artist who I can't actually write when I'm in the throes of a very kind of uncomfortable emotion, be it sadness or anxiety or or stress. I have to wait till after. But I um yeah, we've been in America. I was with Bombay again and um, I was having, I was suffering with incredibly bad anxiety. So like very physical, uh, like my shoulder, like my body was constantly tense. You know, I was in quite a lot of physical pain. I was, yeah, I was having a bit of trouble getting on top of it and all the news cycle, you know, it was like killer bees. And like, I just, I'd given up smoking and taking up vaping. And the whole thing was that like everyone was dying from vaping. So I was like mad stressed and like trying not to take in any, any more nicotine uh which didn't last but to be fair but um so it was clear that to me it was a really clear sense of it was the first time i've been to america and i felt like america was not very well yeah it's in quite a it's like unhealthy the kind word for what it is (laughs) and like i've got a lot of i've got a lot of friends in america and they're all some of the most you know intelligent and and sort of sensitive and and creative people i know but the country as a whole feels so unbelievably kind of hard to understand at the moment it's really hard to understand you know it's mad that the only thing that unifies british voters is that everyone over here regardless of whether you're tory or labor or whatever you we don't like trump (laughs) you know that's the only unifying 
thing we have. The one one silver lining from what he is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, so I think California Screaming was was definitely about that sense of just wanting to release that tension and to just break that that spiky, well, uncomfortable spell. That's why there was so much screaming. <laughs> <laughs> is it a different feeling for you? I mean, that's such like a kind of personal internal experience that is although it's happening all over the world, you know, it's just occurring with, it feels like it's just occurring with you in that moment. How does that differ to when, you look at like we were speaking about the last track earlier on the EP that is dealing with this kind of collective worldwide sense of everyone being in the same place in the same period of stress. Are they quite different feelings for you? When it's like a, a one person thing compared to everyone feeling the same thing? Well, depending on your school of thought, I suppose everyone is experiencing something globally alone. As much as you can acknowledge that somebody else and, you know, empathise with somebody else's suffering, you're ultimately, you're, you're, yeah, everyone's ultimately dealing with this kind of by themselves. And I think that that's sort of where there can be that crossover um, between the personal and kind of universal. Um, I'm sure there's a sort of more eloquent and uh, academic way to come at that question but when you know when you listen to a song usually you say you, you think this one is about me <laughs> this is my song but you will know that you know the person next to you is is being is is resonating with them in the same way so you know it's both isolating and connecting I don't know it's almost like you're, you're isolated together it's that working a paradox yeah I sort of I can't really kind of put my finger on on what on what I mean but I think that yeah when 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 there is a kind of global sense of of struggle you will find comfort you know in in something that speaks to you not to everyone I think what what did you find comfort in at that time then <laughs> I actually I didn't I didn't really find anything until I got home I sort of just endured I really just endured and and just kept it together and then got home and then I think I sort of got got myself straight a little bit but um uh, and when I say that, you know, it's things like looking after yourself, uh, not not drinking, doing yoga, all those things that people know um, help to de-escalate the situation a little bit. Um, and, you know, walking my dog. I'm a real walker. That's where I find a lot of peace. Do you walk a lot with like, without purpose, like just going out for a walk? I love it. There's nothing I like more than getting lost. So if I'll, you know, find a path and then just go and we'll just see where it gets us. And then if we can't find our way back, you, you find, you know, you find North on the compass and I mean, on your phone, like I'm not complete, complete anorak, but um, I love it. It really gives me a lot of, uh, I find that empowering too. Does it have any effect on creativity as well? Well, yeah, I think it probably does. I think that if you're working in the studio, the, the written work, and then you take that break for an hour or so in the middle of the day and uh, just walk, it gives you that sense of kind of um, drinking in like a, a palate cleanser or like a, a glass of water and then you get back to work and refreshed with the closing track again just to come back to it where we've, we've spoken a lot about the state that everything is in at the moment where do you find hope then if we look at the closing track and that idea of of hope or something like it i think you sort of it's a james sort of loosely a james baldwin quote but i think that you have to sort of be he says you have to be hope so you know, it's not just like finding it, it's like having to believe that it exists in, in people, which is quite a curious notion. But um, when, 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 when times are really hard, you find it just in the small, you know, those small snippets of, of good news or in nature, you know, nature will, will do what it does. And I think that a lot of people have felt a lot of comfort in, 
you know, maybe I heard the, you know, I heard the Dawn Chorus in London for the first time in my whole 12 years that I lived there in lockdown. You know, stuff like that makes you think, well, you know, we're kind of so cheesy, but we're guests here. We exist amongst many, many, many other beings. And it sort of just takes your ego out of it a little bit. I think that stuff, if more and more people start to have some connection with the natural world like that, maybe ego will take a back seat and, and we'll find a way. But we'll just, we're so resilient. We're just going to keep going. We just, we don't know which way it's going to go. But yeah, I think you just, I don't think you have a choice but to hope really. I think that's quite a, quite a beautiful optimistic note to kind of, to wrap it up on. Yeah. But before we do so, there was one more thing I wanted to ask about. Yeah. Quite a, quite a pressing question that maybe a lot of people have on their mind. How did Grace Jones's limousine almost run you over? <laughs> Oh my god that was oh my god so this was at wireless festival like years ago it would have been years ago and i remember i saw jarvis cocker and i was a bit like impressed so i was sort of wandering across the road staring at jarvis cocker and then i hear a beep of a horn and look to my right and there's this massive limousine and i'm like oh shit and bloody grace jones is like cruising by it was the best i was like that is amazing and it's amazing because she had her own portaloo. <laughs> and it's like, well, you do what you can to stay a diva, don't you? You do what you can. If you're almost going to get run over by one person, I feel like Grace Jones is a pretty good... I wish she'd hit me. I really do. <laughs> Not in any serious way. Just like a broken toe or something. <laughs> Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.